we got a lot of choppy waters out there. We're seeing it every day. And we've got to make sure that people jump on that arc of the universe to make sure it continues to bend toward justice and to encourage people to do that, to encourage folks to listen and to sit down at the same table and talk about these issues and try to find the common ground for the betterment of everybody, the beloved community. And I think we can do that. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I'm very fortunate to have as my guest today, Doug Jones. Doug is the Democrat who was elected senator from Alabama in 2017, defeating Roy Moore. He was also the U.S. attorney from the Northern District of Alabama from 1997 to 2001, where he successfully prosecuted two Ku Klux Klan members from the 1963 Birmingham church bombing that killed four African-American girls. Since leaving the U.S. Senate, Doug has remained active in politics, helping guide Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson through the nomination process, campaigning around the country for Democrats in the recent midterms, working on an effort called Every Voice to turn around politics in the South, and sitting on the board of DemCast, among many things. Everyone I talked to about Senator Jones testified to what a good person he is, and he was certainly generous with his time in our wide-ranging conversation. You should definitely listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Doug Jones of Alabama. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Doug, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Doug Jones uh, from Alabama. Uh, at one point in my previous life, was a U.S. attorney here in, in Birmingham, Alabama. Private practice. I'm a lawyer by trade. And then 2017 was elected to the United States Senate, where I served a brief but very fun-filled tenure for three years before leaving the Senate in 2021. Yes. And the biography doesn't stop there either. <laughs> well, you know, I, I am currently a counsel with a law firm in D.C. of Aaron Fox Schiff. I am a distinguished senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. And I'm still pretty active with uh, a PAC called the Right Side of History Political Action Committee and also a C4 organization called Every Voice, which is we're trying to do some work in the South to try to get people engaged. So I'm pretty busy these days. Yeah. You seem like the kind of person who uh, wouldn't be too happy without having a lot of irons in the fire. No, that's, that, that, that's right. Sometimes I get a little bit too many, uh, I fear, but it's been a pretty active and busy time coming out of COVID, obviously. Between that and some other fellowships I did at Georgetown and 
teaching at Boston College Law and then at the Institute of Politics in Chicago, um, traveling around for the midterms this past fall. It's been a busy time since leaving the Senate. Yeah. You named your PAC right side of history, the one that you just mentioned. And one question I wanted to ask you, as I see your career and I see how you handled yourself in the Senate and so on, I think that you have been on the right side of history. But often the opposition to someone on the right side of history also thinks they're on the right side of history. And there are a lot of lenses through which to look at the world. How do you know when you're on the right side? Well, I think that that is, that's a really good question. And I think it's just a matter of your moral compass a a little bit and what you really believe this country stands for and who you are as a person. And, you know, there were people that, that there were Confederate generals and Confederates here in the South who fought and died to keep the institution of slavery. And for whatever reason, they thought they were on the right side of history. And when they lost, they thought God had abandoned them. But, you know, my moral compass tells me something differently. My compass tells me that the right side of history is trying to be for equality, for justice. And all of that can be in the eyes of the beholder. But I I, I think if you really look at where I've come from and growing up in a Jim Crow South and trying to do the things to right a lot of wrongs, to me, that's the right side of history. It is a challenge when people see things not just differently. I don't, it's, it's one thing to see things differently about history. It's another one to just see it completely in a, in a light that I don't think is factually supportable <laughs> and still believe that, that your belief is on the right side of history. That's where we run into some real problems. I think. And we have real problems right now in the country with a lot of people exposed to media ecosystems that are far from truthful. There's a lot of misinformation and disinformation and spin and lies and everything else out there. How do you try to exist in an, a political environment where so many people are influenced by things which are transparently not true when you're not enmeshed in them? Yeah, it's, it's, it's not easy. And I think that part of the thing that, that I have to do consistently is try to go where people are. And, and, and understanding that there are a lot of people out there that are hearing this and they see it and they read it and they see it over and over. And so they have this sense that it's true. I mean, look, the, the, the election of 2020 is the perfect example. There is so much out there that you can find that the election was fraudulent, that the election was stolen. But factually, that is just not the case. But you have to understand that if people have been conditioned, they've been taught everything that they have seen and everything they support. See, one of the things that I I think people often forget, and I ran into this in my 2017 race. If you remember my 2017 special election against Roy Moore, about midway, about six weeks before the election, where all of these allegations came up about Moore and what he did when he was a young assistant district attorney and how he would hit on young teenage girls and those kind of things. And people rallied around him a lot. I think part of that was just human nature. Instinctively, when someone you have supported, you find out that there's an issue that 
maybe it's a he said, she said, or whatever. You want to come to their defense and you want to be there. You don't want those allegations to be true because it's also kind of a reflection on you. And so I think that we're seeing a part of that in this whole thing with Donald Trump playing out. People don't want to believe that he actually lost an election. <laughs> he sure as hell doesn't want to believe that. Uh, but the fact that he, that he did. And so you, you tend to gravitate toward those that reinforce that belief. And breaking through with that's really tough to do sometimes. But I think one of the problems that I think Democrats have had is that they haven't gone to people where they are and understood some of that and really talked to them. They've just kind of talked to down like, you idiots, what are you thinking? It's palpably not true. And you should just abandon. And that's just not going to happen. So from my standpoint, it is trying to have those conversations with folks in a very respectful way, understanding they're coming at it from a different angle. I mean, that's that's just the bottom line, I guess, in its very simplest terms. But I will tell you, from a political standpoint, it's a lot easier for us to talk about it than to actually do it. You mentioned this group Every Voice, which I'm not, which I've heard of, but I'm not really familiar with. And what are you doing through that, which sounds like it's aligned with what you're just talking about? Yeah, one of the things that we're really trying to do with Every Voice is to look at the at the South and the voting, and particularly young people in the South. You know, the South is is changing. The demographics are changing, and. I don't think that folks politically are really capitalizing on that. you got a lot of young people that are still not voting in numbers. The South is changing. The demographics, the younger folks are, more, are a much more diverse strata of the population, much more diverse, somewhat more progressive, not a ton. I mean, this is no real leftist group down here, even among the young folks. But they're much more progressive and they've grown and these younger folks have grown up not having the same kind of cultural war baggage that so many middle aged and older folks bring to it, whether it's racial prejudice, whether it's anti-gay prejudice, religious prejudice. They don't have that. They've grown up with gay friends. They've grown up with black friends. They've grown up in a completely different world and they're much more socially progressive on so many areas, but they're just not voting and making their voices heard. So every voice is trying to look at those issues to try to get folks out to vote. Plus, we're also doing some things that, quite frankly, given your background, you would be interested in because we are trying to take some of those voter files that are out there and really put them on steroids. That's one of the problems in the South, in particularly. There are voter files out there, the NGP van voter files out there, but People are not fully utilizing the platform that was built. And so one of the things we're trying to do is take the census data, take the voting data, and really try to give some of these folks some tools necessary to have a much more inclusive and a more progressive electorate and knowledgeable candidacies for folks. What's your role in that? I'm trying to raise some money for it, number one, because I do think that from a progressive and, and when I mean progressive, I'm not necessarily talking about right or left politics. I'm talking about the ability of the South to move forward, to have better education, to have better health care, to have better governance. You only look at what's going on in Mississippi to know that you got to have better governance of $70 million. It was earmarked for poor people that are going to professional football players. So it is that kind of progressive 
nature that I'm talking about. So we're trying to raise some money to do that. And we're trying to focus on states to try to build this up, to give people the tools. So I'm doing a little bit of all of it. I'm talking about it. I'm trying to raise the money. Where I was going with that is that I really believe that the future of a lot of the politics in this country lies in the South. And as the South is changing, particularly the Democratic Party, of which I'm a member, the changes that I think need to come are going to come primarily from the South. You know, right now, there's a lot of emphasis in the party about recognizing and trying to promote the backbone of the party, which is the black voters and particularly black women. Well, you know, overwhelmingly, the the voters that the Democratic Party recognizes as the backbone of the party live in five southern states, a majority. We're just not being able to capture that and to build the kind of coalitions with others that I think can make a real impact. And the goal here is not to flip this state or flip that state or flip this district. The goal is to have a competitive two-party system. Well, what did you discover when you started to run in 2017 in Alabama, a state that I remember having Democratic statewide elected officials not that terribly long ago? I'm old enough to have seen the Howell Heflins and seen Shelby switch parties and things like that. Was there a functional state party? Was there a functional voter file? What did you have for infrastructure and progressive ecosystem when you launched that? We had very little of that. The party had been had atrophied for several, a number of years. It was dysfunctional. We didn't really get very much help from the state party. The, the state party was controlled by a, a few people, and, and it did not do the kind of things that were necessary to try to build a party. We changed some of that, but now it's gone back to its old ways. We didn't have the infrastructure built. If part of this is a problem that I've raised hell about for a long time. And I did it before I I became a U.S. senator. I did it from my platform as U.S. senator. And that is the National Party just abandoned the South. They just wrote us off. Whether or not there was an element of prejudice about that because we've had such a a history in the South of racial prejudice and, and those kind of things, or whether it was part of an urban versus rural kind of uh, prejudice. I don't know, but I know this. I know that they just wrote the South off and they quit investing in the South. And when that happened, people around here just got conditioned because we got fewer and fewer candidates. There were fewer and fewer people coming up. And the bench was very, very weak. We were fortunate because it was a special election. I did not have to deal with other candidates running around the state. I didn't have to deal with the state party. We kind of built that on our own according to what we believed was the right thing to do, going back to kind of the right side of history. And that is being straight up in how I feel about civil rights, voting rights, women's rights, you name it, and not having to kind of bend a little bit. And so we built that all ourselves. There was virtually no support system that we had for that kind of infrastructure. I had a conversation with Joe Trippi, who was part of your campaign that year, one of the media consultants, talking about your race in particular. This is some number of years ago. And he said that the effort was so much around avoiding the nationalization of the contest. If Trump came through or the, or something happened to nationalize the race, the polls would move against you as you were able to get your own voice heard 
and some of the the problems of your opponent, things would swing the other way. And it, it ended up quite fortunately for the country the way it did. Did that sound accurate in his portrayal of things? It is, but I guess you have to kind of, I guess you kind of have to explain what nationalized the race might be. I mean, along the polarized nature of our parties right now, where people, he put it as like people going to their corners and becoming tribal. Yeah, and and we had just come off a couple of months earlier, the John Ossoff congressional race, which was national in that they made that a referendum on Donald Trump. And it was a really national effort. And John was on TV, on national TV all of the time. We did not want to do it that way, but I didn't shy away from having folks assist us. For instance, Joe Biden came in for me in October. In the latter couple of months of the campaign, Cory Booker came down, Deval Patrick came down. There were any number of the Congressional Black Caucus members that were coming over to help in those last few weeks. So it we tried to make sure that it was not a referendum on Trump. That to me was keeping it not national. And that what we found was there was this incredible strata of voters in Alabama that had felt like they had been abandoned, that they had no voice. And then all of a sudden they had a voice and it was an Alabama voice that was consistent with their more progressive politics. That was a, a huge shift for us. We had to try to do the things. And I told everybody that every race these days is more national than you want to make it. And there is always going to be that. And when those allegations came up against more, that's when we struggled the most to keep it more local because then the whole national media was focused on it, worldwide media was focused on us, and we wanted to continue to make sure we had an Alabama message, but it was not like they say in the old days, well, I'm an Alabama Democrat. I refuse to talk about that because the Alabama Democrats of old were racist, and I was not that. I didn't want to go into that thing. I was a Democrat, and I was proud of it. I still am. But that didn't mean I'm I'm lockstep with everybody. But I I was giving voice to people that hadn't had a voice. And that was really important to do, not just to win, but to maintain credibility. And that, to me, was the most important thing. It seems like nowadays to hold a district in the House or a state in the Senate against the national tide is just way harder than it used to be. There's just not the split ticket voting. There's not the openness for federal office for people to look at you as a person in a lot of cases. I feel for senators like Tester or Manchin or people like that who sit in states that went very strongly for the other party. And you experience that, right, yourself firsthand. Absolutely. How do we recruit for offices like that? How do we? keep people interested in running again when the tide is so hard against them? How do we think about being candidates in that? What's your view on that? It's tough. And that's one of the things that I think we're going to be doing, hopefully, with every voice, is because if you can show that there is at least a plausible path 
that you may not win. And you have to go into it understanding the headwinds that you face that are historic headwinds in the sense of history tells you that this district or this state is going to vote Republican no matter what. But I do believe that things can be done in a way that you open that up. Look, I I am a firm believer in party loyalists, okay? There's got to be party loyalists for everybody that will be the base of, of that party. But sometimes when the party base becomes so extreme, it opens up the other possibilities for the middle, the middle and the independent voters, I think, to maybe have a voice that they haven't had. And that's what I think we may be seeing across the country. It gives people like the folks in Montana that know John Tester, like the folks in Ohio that know Sherrod Brown and the folks in West Virginia that know Joe Manchin. It gives them that opportunity to say, look, I don't like what's going on in this extreme party. I'm going to stick with a guy I know who's working for us and doing those kind of things. And I, I do think there's an opportunity there across the board. But one of the things that we've got to do, I think we've got to convince business leaders, union leaders. I think we've got to convince a lot of people that they should not be bashful about saying some things when we can move forward. For instance, I was really disappointed in our business community in Alabama who did not stand up and come out and say things when our now senior senator from Alabama, who was junior senator at the time, went on kind of a racist rant in Nevada. That doesn't help. That doesn't help Alabama. And if businesses and the leadership and the people that helped put him in office don't push back on that, it's just going to get worse. And I think they've got to push back on things. And, and by the way, I did this speech just recently. I mean, I did this speech to the Birmingham Rotary Club, which is as conservative business group as you can get. And I told them that you got to start connecting the dots with businesses and the ability to attract businesses to Alabama and keep young people here and do things. And when you have these draconian immigration laws, you have these bills that attack women and their reproductive rights. Since that time, you've just had the Alabama attorney general said that he would prosecute a woman if she takes a morning after pill. Good God. I mean, how do you expect to grow as a state if you're going to take that kind of stuff? So I think we have to get more civic engagement, as Gary Hart would say in his most recent book, more civic engagement with people that will push back against the grain. I told these guys in Birmingham the other day, I said, you elected these people. By God, you can unelect them. <laughs> you know, Gary Hart was my first real political candidate. I grew up in Colorado. I really rooted for him in 84. I was so disappointed with what happened in 87. And I still admire the guy. I think he is a very thoughtful man. He's brilliant. He's more than thoughtful. He's a brilliant guy. And his most recent, it's really a, a long essay. He's published it in a little book about how the American Republic can, can save American democracy. It's a remarkable book. It really is a remarkable way of trying to tell people to get engaged on the basic local level and, and, and real engagement, not just going and screaming at people, but get engaged on the issues and learn about the things. And that will bubble up. It's a great book. What type of candidate do you think 
can be successful in this era in a purple or red state for the Democrats? What are the characteristics? Because some people will argue that we need a populist, like is about to run in Missouri, I think, who carries more of a Sanders sort of message, which which has worked well with independents in lots of places, or there's more your model, I would say. Do you think that we need to run people who, the cliche is like fit the district or fit the state, or do you think there's another angle to get progressive representation there? No, I, I, I think that in many states, in many districts, especially districts that have now been gerrymandered, okay, which is another whole issue. I think you've got to get folks out there that can help educate. I think part of the problem that we've got is that you have candidates who will go out and just kind of say those popular things that they want, that they think will will push a button to get somebody to vote for them, as opposed to trying to help educate a population, help educate a public, and to try to move the state, move the district forward in a different way. So, I mean, I obviously I'm a little bit biased here, um, but I think that clearly populism has had its its ups, but it's had more of its downs than anything else. I see this more like the stock market. Okay, you got to play for the long haul. The stock market goes up in the long run, and you may have a shiny company that comes in and all of a sudden takes a hit or do whatever, but it's it's really playing for the long term. And I don't think that the populism form of playing that way is long ball. I really don't believe that. I think it's somebody that is one, authentic, and two, that recognizes that if you win an election, you represent those people that not only voted for you, but voted against you, that voted for somebody else. And our democracy as such, you've got to take so many things into consideration and trying to find that common ground. I think it's very difficult for populist candidates, populist public servants to find that common ground. And they're too afraid to find it because they're afraid of losing that populist base that got them the nomination in the first place. And because of the way we've conditioned and gerrymandered the districts, populism plays to the nomination. And once you get that nomination in so many states and in so many districts, it's tantamount to winning. And that's why I really would like to see more candidates who are talking to people, understanding where they're coming from, trying to find that common ground and moving forward as a whole rather than just my way or the highway, which is kind of the way I think the populist candidates act. If that's making any sense to you. It does. And I, you know, I think it's hard not to escape the model of Donald Trump as a somehow populist candidate who is a my way or the highway type of person who is inflexible and has the whole litany of problems that he has, but who seems to have educated that party about a way of electioneering that they see as working for him and which too many of them are copying. What do you think ends up curing the Republican Party of its current infatuation with right-wing populism? 
If I had the answer to that question, I would probably be running for president right now. I mean, it would, I, I, I think it's going to take a little bit of time. I think that the first blow came this past uh, election cycle. You're seeing more and more, for instance, Republicans now have this commission or committee on candidate quality. Well, that, you know, hell, that, that's ridiculous. I mean, that, you just think about that. You got to have a committee, committee on candidate quality when it's your voters who selected those candidates. I mean, it wasn't a backroom deals. It was the voters that selected them. So you've got that, but you're also seeing Republicans now saying, you know what, maybe this early voting and maybe mail-in voting is not so bad after all. Well, I, I think that there is a recognition that maybe extremists are not going to be the way to go. And that's been associated with the populist forms of, of, of candidacies right, right now. So I think it's going to take a little bit more. It's going to take a, another cycle or two. It seems to me that the voices of the moderates, they're getting a little bolder. So far, they've been kind of timid um, to try to challenge Donald Trump. I've said for a while now that I've thought there were like three types of folks in the Republican Party right now. You had that extremist MAGA base. And on the other hand, you had the moderates who were speaking out. We've seen those people like Larry Hogan and Asa Hutchison and some others. But most of them were in the middle and they kept their mouth shut, and they were the enablers. Well, if you can get the enablers to quit enabling and to skip back to a Republican Party that is fiscally conservative, strong on defense, the way it was when I grew up, that is the best anecdote for everything, but it's going to take a little bit longer. But at the end of the day, it's going to take a little political courage, and it's going to take some candidates standing up and saying, you know, me winning is not the most important thing. I'm going to say what needs to be said and try to get more people voting in the Republican primary that believe in that and not just this extremist base. If January 6th, if a insurrection, uh, invasion of the Capitol building instigated by the president, an impeachment attempt after that, if that wasn't enough for the enabling class of Republicans? Like, what's it going to take? Losing. Yeah. Losing. And right they, now, and right now, who's losing are the are the small group of the of the Republicans who are speaking out and are moderate, right? Well, and that's because the leadership in the House caved to the most extremes of their party. Um, we will see. I think that, you know, we're going to have to wait and see if the House of Representatives does anything and the Republicans in the House do anything other than investigations and causing chaos again. This is not something that will happen overnight. People are getting their footing, though, a little bit. They're still getting that. Businesses are getting their footing a little bit. What kind of world is it when the, an endorsement from the Chamber of Commerce is a, uh, a death knell for a Republican candidate in a primary, but that's what we're seeing. They've got to get back a little bit to that. It's Look, this is not going to be anything easy because people do want to hang on to their jobs. They don't want to get primaried. But at some point, that's why I started it with saying there's got to be a little political courage where people are putting that long ball and that long-term interest beyond their own personal interest of whether or not they maintain the gavel or they maintain 
even their office. Uh, they've got to start doing something along those lines. There's a significant strain in the political science literature about responsible parties. There's a book I read recently by a professor at University of Virginia, Sidney Milkus, about this, this need to, to be able to battle about ideas without destroying institutions and norms and to have a venue for that and to have the role of the party elevated back to where it used to be when it did more gatekeeping around who a decent candidate was and who, you know, not, and then, and you see like a tiny bit of that with the Republicans, with the guy who ran in New York state for Congress, who lied about everything on his resume, right? They're starting to try to turn on him a little bit. We'll see how that sorts out. Do you think that we've gone too far in sort of reducing the organizational role of the party in favor of direct connections between politicians and voters? It's a hard question for people nowadays because the view of parties is so negative, but they have traditionally played in a more important role than they do right now. Yeah, they, they have played, and I think that they could play a, a better role. The problem is I think the parties have just pretty much ceded that authority, kind of like Congress has ceded so much authority to the president. They need to actually pull some of that authority back because that's what the Constitution says. And the parties have done some of that, too. And again, it's, it, it's all circular to some extent. And I think this is probably a good way of saying that is because, you know, as the parties want to keep power, OK, they gerrymander these districts, then their their candidates are playing to a small subset of the electorate as a whole just to get the nomination. And so it's just it, it comes back to bite the parties when that happens. You know, you only have to look at what happened in a number of the Republican parties in Alabama right now. Our newly elected senator and our governor felt compelled to talk about that the election was stolen. They didn't have to do that, but they felt compelled to do it to try to win the nomination. So our U.S. Senator got elected effectively with 250,000 votes in a Republican primary. And the general election, she had 60-something percent of the vote. She didn't even run any TV ads in the general election. So to some extent, I, I, I think the parties ought to try to figure out a way at the end of the day, it's going to take people representing those parties in public office to start educating people, to start pulling back on it, and to start trying to, in my view, to do the kind of things that will allow the parties to help be the gatekeepers. They can't be solely responsible for the gates, but they can help and give folks the authority to, to do it. But it is a really tough question. I, I got to tell you, it's really difficult right now. Somebody asked me, you know, after I did the work on Justice Jackson, is the confirmation process broken? I said, no, I don't think the process is broken. What's broken is a lot of the committee members who want to demagogue the issue and make something out of it, as opposed to what it is, is a really somber kind of process for a lifetime appointment. They want to make it a political deal, and that's damaged the institution of the Senate, and it's damaged the institution of the Supreme Court. I, I don't get a chance to talk to people who've been senator every day. Tell me a little bit about what that felt like to you. 
you win an election, there's obviously a celebration about the victory, but then it's a job and you, and you enter that job, you have to hire a staff, you have to decide how you're going to represent your state. Tell me about like, just from a, from a personal point of view, how did it feel and what, what did you learn from it? Wow. It, it felt amazing. I mean, I, you know, as a kind of a student of history, a student of politics, as somebody who worked for Howell Heflin, who you mentioned a minute ago, and the Senate, I'd always loved the Senate as an institution. And to be able to be there, to be in his seat was just on a very personal and emotional level is just something that's hard to describe. On the other hand, I also knew that as a Democrat in a really deeply red state, I was going to have a ton of challenges. And my challenges were to try to do all of the things that I could for the people of Alabama, knowing knowing that, quite frankly, that there will be some things that I would do that the majority of people in the state who had not really looked and have strong feelings about whether it's abortion or Donald Trump's impeachment or the Brett Kavanaugh nomination, that's all they were going to care about. I just did what we felt like was the right thing to do. I told my staff early on, just like I'd done in the campaign, that, look, we've got some chances here to do some things for the people of the state that hadn't been done in a long time. And I want to make sure that as we're casting votes, as we're making decisions about what we're going to do in this body, that you give me the pros and the cons. Let's talk about it from the standpoint of what we believe is the right thing to do. But don't ever tell me that politically with the election coming up, I need to do X. That's not a consideration. Don't tell me necessarily that the caucus is going to do it this way or that way, and you got to go with the caucus. That is not in our determination, in our calculation. It was both difficult, but at the same time, it was also one of those things where if you knew every day that you were really doing the right thing and not the political thing, it made it a lot easier. Because, you know, it sounds a little liberating, but if exactly a word I've used about it, you know, it, um, would you have voted differently if your state was closer, like if you anticipated a close election where the impeachment vote or another one of those high visibility votes might have made the difference? No, I would not have voted differently. I, we worked our ass off on all of those votes. I mean, we really put in a lot of time. My staff put in a lot of time and I was not about, you know, to shirk responsibilities that I believe I had that was to vote my best judgment, not just take a poll and to see how people want to do it. I, there are a couple of votes that if I had a do-over, I would take back, but it had nothing to do with the politics and have everything to do with, oops, I may have made a mistake by voting for this person over that, you know, in, instead of voting against them. Like nominations for for cabinet or well, it was mainly nominations. I yeah. mean, I, I you know I, I voted for uh, Bill Barr. I voted for Mike Pompeo. If I had those votes to take over, I'd probably not vote that way. Knowing what I know now, okay, I had a different view at the time and having talked to them and having known their history. But knowing what I know now, I think that a lot of what was said and done is counter to what I was told was going to be said and done. 
But in terms of the politics of it, though, in terms of just looking at it, whether or not I had a uh, because, and you know, look, we we like to believe that the election was going to be closer than it was. I would not have done anything over based on the politics of the state or the polling in my state. Not at all. Do you think you got the support from the National Democratic Party that you should have gotten in your reelection? No, of course not. I mean, based on numbers, they were seeing the numbers. If the numbers had been closer, they, they would have. I think, you know, I, I got a ton of support from my colleagues on an individual basis, but not from the party. They had resources that were going into to other races that they felt like were more competitive. As it turned out, they were more competitive. The problem was not the resources in my race. The problem has been the resources over the last 20 years to keep infrastructure, to keep a, a building Democrats have traditionally have just kind of gone from election cycle to election cycle, looking for a shiny candidate that might have a shot. But I had as good a shot of winning, if not better, than beating Mitch McConnell, beating Lindsey Graham, beating Susan Collins. Democrats want to go after people that have pissed them off a lot. And so I raised a lot of money on an individual basis, but not anywhere near some of what the others did. And I told folks, you know, in the party, in the caucus, I said, guys, this is not just a, an election year investment that has to be made. If you want to start making a difference and you want to start keeping the majority for more than a cycle or two, you're going to have to start making year round investments in these southern states and these Midwestern states. There are opportunities that are going to be there to change as the electorate changes as these younger folks age and have other younger voters that come behind them, they're going to have these opportunities. But unless you start investing now, then by the time the 25-year-old gets to be 55, you've lost them. Yeah, You've lost them. People tend to treat you differently when you have a big title and when you have power. You know, I've seen that even on the very micro level running a company uh, and being a U.S. senator is some orders of magnitude up there. How did you keep your head? Because I've seen some people um, change as a result of that kind of position. What kept you grounded? I don't know, but I go back to a comment that somebody made. I am who I am. And, you know, when I became United States attorney in 1997, I had started my legal career right after a year in the Senate working with Senator Heflin as an assistant U.S. attorney. And I did that for four years as a prosecutor. Then I went into private practice for 13 years as a defense lawyer. And I'll never forget an opportunity one time. I was on a plane. I was about to become U.S. attorney. So I was going back on the other side of the courtroom. And I got on a plane and I sat with Sandra Day O'Connor flying from Phoenix to Washington. And I told her what I was doing. And that I had been on a board, I'd been very active in the Criminal Defense Lawyers Association. Now I was about to become a prosecutor again. And she thought that was just fantastic. She said, you know, I think that the thing that would help help our criminal justice system more than anything else would be for have prosecutors and, and public defenders swap jobs for a year. Don't lose benefits, don't do it, just swap jobs and stand in somebody else's shoes. 
And that stuck with me. And I'll tell you a, a comment that was made to me by one of my colleagues in the U.S. Attorney's Office that helped me prosecute this church bombing cases as I was leaving the U.S. Attorney's Office. He said, Doug, I have worked for five U.S. attorneys now. And he said, you more than any of the others were able to manage the power that comes with this office better than anybody. And I thought about that conversation a lot. And I wanted to make sure that I did the same thing as a United States senator, because it can go to your head. It is just wonderful. But, you know, I would sit back and I would watch things going on in the floor. And I, th I would just think how lucky I was to be there, to be that part of history. I'd look at the desk drawer, at the desk I was sitting at that had been signed by John F. Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey and Ed Muskie and all these incredible leaders. And I would think that the only way you can have any success and the only way you can sleep at, at night is to make sure that you manage who you are and you take this responsibility seriously, but you don't take the title of yourself that damn seriously. You understand your limitations. You're just, you're just Doug from Fairfield, Alabama, that happened to be placed in a position to do some good for people. If you let the power go to your head, you're going to lose that opportunity to do those kind of things. And so it, it, it was really an interesting dynamic to try to do that. And by the way, my wife would tell you, she helped keep me pretty damn grounded all the time. too. <laughs> I have that uh, asset as well. What are the two things you're most proud of that you worked on as a senator? As a senator, we did a lot of really good things. The number one thing to me that I'm the proudest of is an effort that I worked on with Susan Collins to try to, to eliminate what was known as the military widow's tax, something I'd never heard about. It was a, an offset from military benefits for surviving spouses that had been in effect for 30 years. And, it, and, and, and people were paying out of their own pocket for this life insurance. And they weren't getting the benefit for that because Congress had offset it and they called it euphemistically the, the military widow's tax. And it was costing people $1,000 a month, just on average. And for a lot of these military widows, that was a lot of money. And when I heard about it, I couldn't believe that we would do that to these folks. This was money that Congress had, had basically said, it doesn't matter that you're paying for this extra on your own. It, we're just going to keep that. And over the years, people had lobbied. The Gold Star Widows had come up and they lobbied and all these people would just pat them on the back and say, oh, yeah, 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 we're there. We support this. And then they'd go away. And when they saw how much money it would cost, they would back off of it and they would never fund it to make it right. And when I heard about it, I just couldn't believe it. And we worked really hard. We got 80 co-sponsors and we just kept at it. We were just dogged at it. And, you know, that was only going to affect about 2,000 families in Alabama, okay? But for those 2,000 families, it was a big deal. When we were able to get that passed, there were about 30 of these ladies up in the balcony, and it was an emotional time. I still get uh, emotional talking about it because I still hear the stories. I saw some the other day. 
and the stories about these widows being able to keep their homes because of this extra $1,000 a month. So that clearly was one of the proudest things I did. There's something about interacting with a real person when something large and theoretical and enshrined in legislation, but it brings it home to you when you like are at their doorstep and you have a sense of their budget and their family, right? That's just a wholly different thing. It's what it's all about. At the end of the day, it's not about the huge military defense budget. It's about how all of this affects human beings and people in your district. So there was that. There was the, the Cold Case Civil Rights Act that I worked on with Ted Cruz. That was our idea. And Ted came to me to help on that. And he did an incredible job of helping. And I worked with Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray a lot and Kamala Harris some. And we got permanent funding and additional funding for HBCUs. We've got a lot of historically black colleges in Alabama. And it's those kind of things to me that I was just incredibly proud of that we were able to accomplish. We brought in a lot of money to our our state through the things that we we worked on on armed services. Alabama gets a lot of money and we did some very special things. We did a lot of good things like that, but it's the things like HBCUs, it's the things like the military widows tax and the Colts case civil rights uh, act that is gonna help people down the road understand some of these cases that are just a couple of the things that I was most proud of. Tell me about the feeling of losing when you've had that kind of satisfaction, losing the power and the title and the opportunities that go along with it. That's got to be a big challenge, even if you've been there for only three years, say. Yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's not the power that, that has, has always troubled me in the last two years. It is the opportunities um, lost. Number one, I had pretty much braced myself for, for losing. The Yoda of my campaign, Giles Perkins, who passed away in, in 2018 after my election, he told me, he said, Doug, this it's the reelect that'll be the toughest. You know that. And I said, oh, absolutely. So I'd always, and I, I was pretty much prepared uh, to lose. I was read, I saw it coming. I was good. I was okay there. But I also knew that there was a lot of unfinished business around this place, and I was not going to just fade away or I was not just going to become a lobbyist and try to just make money off of it. In the last two years, it's really losing what I think would have been some interesting opportunities for Alabama, for the South, and for the party, because there's not as many voices like mine in the Senate or the House, and especially with somebody who has known the president as long as I've had it. I often think about what I could be doing to try to help, not just with the president and his agenda, but also help in the Senate with colleagues on both sides of the aisle, because that's where I think my strong suit was, uh, working with folks on both sides of the aisle. And so it's that opportunity lost. I mean, who knows if things would have been different than what they are right now, but I would have been in the thick of it and it would have been something I enjoyed and it would have been something I think that we could have made a lot of uh, a lot of movement on and maybe even done a few better things. I don't know. We'll see. You're young yet. Um, <laughs> you, you, I wouldn't say you, that. Well, you, you know the age of a lot of our, our leaders these days and that leaves us with a fair amount of time. 
And you're, you know, at the outset of the interview, you talked a lot about some of the ways that you're, you're active right now. How do you think about like where you can slot in? Because obviously you have reached a level in politics and in law where you have national credibility, you have a voice. How can we as a country best use you? How can you find the right place for yourself? It's, it strikes me as not a simple equation. No, it, it's not. And some of that just kind of it is not something that you seek. It's something that just kind of finds you. Uh, I, it was a, a stroke of factors that just fell in line for me to become a United States attorney when I had turned it down at one point a little bit earlier. The opportunity to run for elected office, I thought had pretty much fallen by the wayside for me. And then all of a sudden there was a special election that popped up that gave me an opportunity to have that voice. So what I'm doing is I'm continuing to be out there. I'm continuing to talk about the causes I believe in, the candidates I believe in, to work to make the state, the country better. I'm convinced that either a door will open um, or it won't. And either way, I'm still going to be doing the same kind of things. And so we'll see how it goes. I'm staying pretty active. I told my wife as when I left the Senate, there's just still so much unfinished business. And if we can do things, especially in the South, to try to open this area up a little bit more and get it more competitive. And that's how I think we move. And then we'll just see. I mean, you know, things may open up, things may not. You you could imagine being appointed to a big role with Biden at some point. uh, Well, you know, I mean, look, people have to to leave. I I had hoped that that would be the case uh, early on. It didn't happen. And so I made the most of that. But then he called on me a year later with Justice Jackson, and that was a remarkable, just an absolutely remarkable position to be in to help that. I can't help, given that, to ask you about her. What was she like as a person to shepherd through that process? Oh, she was extraordinary. She is an absolute extraordinary human being. She absolutely extraordinary person and incredibly Wicked smart. I mean, just, I mean, but also um, just dedicated. She really worked hard um, during all the preparation and she listened and she took it all in and she was just a delight to be with. That's the other thing. She was also down to earth. She was also somebody that was approachable and we just became great friends. We still text back and forth some just to, to stay in touch and to, to be there and to be on that floor. I opted to be on the Senate floor with colleagues when the vote was taken as opposed to the, the White House. And to be there on that historic occasion for that thing and to have had a role in it was just really amazing for me. It really was amazing. I've had a number of guests on my podcast recently who are persuaded that the current Supreme Court is so right-wing that it needs to be expanded. And we know Biden went through that process of uh, a commission thinking about it. What is your view about that? I mean, right after the Civil War, the Republicans held the court at a certain number for a while, expanded it later for political reasons because they wanted to keep a Republican majority. There's precedent in our history for politically changing the court. And the court has made some 
really bad decisions and seems poised to make some others along those lines if you come from where I come from. Do you have theories about what we ought to do about that? Do we have to just endure it until we can make appointments or should we change the size of it? I don't think I would change the size of it. And this, by the way, was something that she kept being asked over and over. And she was not going to answer that question. Even I don't know what her answer would be. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that she should get into at all. No, not at all. I mean, the court can't do it itself unless, unless the court itself comes to Congress and says, we have too many cases. We have overworked. We need to restructure this or do something. And that seems like a legitimate argument that they're not going to make with a 6-3 majority. No, no, no. They're they're not going to make that argument. That's not going to happen. So, you know, look, I'm a little bit more institutionalist on that. And I would I, I would argue, quite frankly, that, you know, look, this is our own damn fault. OK, we didn't pay attention to some of this. If you were that concerned about it, you should have gotten out there and voted because Hillary Clinton would have made different appointments than Donald Trump after the election in 2016. This is an issue of voting. That's why I keep wanting to do things to help change some things in the South to get people to realize that. One of the ways that I came across you in my world recently is I'd interviewed the two founders of Demcast, Nick and Lori. And that is a firm that's helping Democrats with social media. And as I understand it, you're on their board. How did you get involved in that? What is that? Why is that important? Well, Demcast got, uh, Demcast started in part, I think, and really took off a little bit uh, in my election in 2017. And I, I just think that right now, Republicans have dominated the social media world and they know how to do things. And they have a much more disciplined message than Democrats have ever thought about having. And I, I just like the way that they would reach out to folks to do some organizing to push out messaging for folks. And the way that I think I've been able to help them a little bit, and we did this in Justice Jackson's confirmation, was to, to, to not be the bullies on social media, to not just be the name callers on social media, but to push back on facts and to, to kind of lift people up a little bit. And I think that there is a lot to be said for the way that Demcast has been doing that and the way that they need to expand that in the future. Because I do think that Democrats have underestimated social media a good bit. They have put their emphasis on social media advertising and not really on organizing. They just think that as long as they get a message out there, that these so-called influencers will push it out for them. But you really got to engage. It, it's just like going door to door. And it's just like town hall meetings in town square. You've got to engage with people. And that's something we normally don't do. Engaging is also trying to persuade. And you can't persuade people if you just call them names and you tell them how stupid they are. You've got to engage them with facts. And what we saw in both things that they did, Demcast did with Ukraine and we did in, with KBJ is that people responded. And we did that in a couple of races, and we really elevated some candidates in this last cycle. I I read a book recently. I don't know if you would have read it. It's called Civil War by Other Means. It's by a historian, Jeremy Surrey, at the University of Texas. It's about our long, unfinished fight for democracy. And what it's really about is the history post-Civil War through Garfield's assassination. 
where the promise of the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments is followed by violence and backsliding in the South. And his argument in the book is basically something like, uh, that war never, never got over. We are still trying to incorporate the descendants of enslaved peoples into the democracy. We're still trying to realize the full promise of the democracy. These are ongoing fights. And in fact, the, some of the same people are still fighting on the other side of it. And he draws a line ultimately from Trump back to like the Andrew Johnsons and the KKK of the time to some of the people that have supported Trump and were at the insurrection. Do you see that link to our civil war past and and the problems with slavery in our politics now the way he does? Well, you know, look, I haven't read the book. You need to send it to me. To send me the name and the title again because it sounds like a book I would like to read. What I say is whether there is a, a link. I don't know how much the link is direct in the sense that it is just a bunch of, of, of racists out there wanting to relive the Civil War, wanting to put people in chains again. On the other hand, there is an element of that that I think Trump played to. And that was a base that he felt like he could turn out. And I think others are doing the same thing. And that is a real problem. And I do think we've had a serious problem in trying to to right those wrongs, to live up to the the ideal of America that everybody is truly equal, that is said in the Declaration of Independence. And I wish, oh man, I wish I had brought I wish I'd brought my my copy of John Meacham's new book here. I'm at my little office as opposed to home. But our, John Meacham's new book about Abraham Lincoln has a similar theme, but not the, the direct link, but certainly the fact that after the Civil War, after Lincoln's death and with Reconstruction, that there was an element to bring everything back into the true meaning of, of equality and bringing full citizenship. And because of the election of 1876 and the compromises that were made, everything got topsy-turvy. And he's got one paragraph about how Lincoln saw... Um, I forget exactly how he did it, but he compared it to to Easter. But instead, it ended up being where we can't really, uh, where he was hoping it would be the Easter of equality, where slavery would end and people would be seen, but there was still, it ended up still being this passion. The South refused to move from enslavers to co-citizens, companion citizens, something like that. Sometimes you can win the war and not win the peace. You can lose the persistence to keep the struggle going and to follow through on the promises of an opening and a big change. I mean, one thing that struck me in that book was like after John Wilkes Booth assassinates Lincoln, it goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning of this interview with the different lenses that people bring. Some people mourned the president and some people celebrated the assassin because they'd been at war. They had highly different viewpoints. We worry about the kind of cold civil war that we have right now. Some people call it that. But the hot civil war where we were slaughtering each other was far worse. 
I yeah. Mean, yeah, and, and and unfortunately, without Reconstruction, when Andrew Johnson just started pulling back, it allowed white supremacy to continue to thrive, not just live, but to thrive, to dominate. It was it was just right in the summer after George Floyd's death that the Alabama Department of Archives issued a statement essentially saying that they were founded with the idea of perpetuating white supremacy. And everything had been geared that way. And they're reformulating a lot of their exhibits and their artifacts because they realized that perpetuating the myth of the lost cause was not historically accurate. (laughs) And celebrating, as we do in this state a lot, Confederate generals whose whose goal was to kill United States Army personnel to try to overturn a government is not something we should be doing. And certainly, sure as hell, not something we should be celebrating. I mean, you have your unique role in that fight. You have a book called Bending Towards Justice about the Birmingham church bombings. Why did you decide to write a book about that? I mean, obviously a very important part of your life. A lot of effort went into it. I'm sure a lot of satisfaction in getting to uh, some justice. But tell me about like why a book? What are you trying to say there? Well, it, it, it was a combination of things. First of all, I, I really believed that there was so much information that had not been made public about the bombing itself, about the cases itself. People understood and they knew we got the convictions. But I think it was more than that. I wanted for historical purposes, I wanted to make a record of all that we did to try to bring justice to these to those families, to the community, to the church, to Birmingham, and to some extent Alabama and the country, and make that historical record. But it also is one of those things that if you put it in the context of the civil rights movement and what happened with the bombing, you can hopefully learn lessons that we don't repeat going down the road. Unfortunately, I think we've repeated a lot of them and we're still doing it. But it was also a thing to examine what was going on in the civil rights movement, what was going on in Alabama that led to those bombings that included the rhetoric of a renegade governor like Wallace, a racist police commissioner like Bull Connor that empowered people to feel that they could do that bombing and get away with it, which they did for so, so long. And there's so many parallels, I think. And I was hoping, and I still hope, that people will see the bombing itself and the time it took to do the cases, but what it took to do them as a way to say, we don't really need to repeat that history. We can do better. We can stop this. We can do better. And so there was all of that that went into doing that in, in terms of just also just getting the history down for posterity, because I don't think people learn about that civil rights history enough in school, in their civic organizations. They just don't know about it. The title Bending Towards Justice is like it's an aspirational one in, in a certain sense. We know that our history has gone forward and backwards. We've had the dark ages. Humans don't always move forward. And right now is, I think, a very confusing time. There are trends that are very positive about our country, allowing marriage for gay people, 
there are a bunch of ways in which we are more open, more whole than we used to be. And then there are these scary things, some of which came along with Trump and we've discussed. What's your level of optimism versus pessimism about our country? And what do you think it takes for us all to fight to get on the path that will end up with a brighter future? I'm optimistic because we're the United States of America. At the end of the day, we're Americans. We have gone through some really difficult times in our history. We've survived them. We've gone through world wars. We've gone through a civil war. We've gone through the civil rights movement. We've gone through the women's suffrage movement. We've gone through a a number of turmoils. But at the end of the day, we somehow pull back together because we have these institutions that people care about. We have that in our DNA. And so I'm optimistic about that. The title of my book, Bending Toward Justice, was a conscious effort to basically play on the Dr. King's, you know, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. But I firmly believe that it doesn't necessarily bend by itself, that people have to be the ones to bend that arc. If you recall the night that I was elected in 2017, I said that the arc of that universe, that the people of Alabama bent that and it's going through right through the heart of Alabama. And it's people that have to bend it toward justice. And you have to do that in a conscious way. You can't just wait for things to happen. And I see across this country now where people are pushing back on the extremes in both sides, both right and left, to say, no, that is not respectful of our Constitution. It's not respectful of our fellow citizens. People, you know, often are too afraid to stand up and speak out and to do what John Lewis used to say, cause a little good trouble. But I think people are seeing that now. They got to do that a little bit more. So I am optimistic. I tell folks the midterm elections gives me some hope, but was by no means the total victory that that I think often Democrats and even the administration like to say, even though it was historic. But democracy got kind of a reprieve in this election. And it's still going to take a lot of work because we've got a lot of choppy waters out there. We're seeing it every day. And we've got to make sure that people jump on that arc of the universe to make sure it continues to bend toward justice and to encourage people to do that, to encourage folks to listen and to sit down at the same table and talk about these issues and try to find the common ground for the betterment of everybody, the beloved community. And I think we can do that. I just think we've done it in the past. We've we've endured some difficult times and we've got some more in front of us. I'm still optimistic that we can make it happen. That seems like a good note on which to give you a reprieve from my questions. But <laughs> is there something I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I always get asked that question, but I don't. I, I, we've covered a lot of ground here. You probably ask all the right questions. I'm sure when I hang up there, this call of this computer, I'm going to think of other things I should have said. The one thing that I that I really really struggle with a little bit is is the media and how to get the media away from clickbait and back to journalism that gives people facts and let folks understand a same set of, of facts. I, that's a challenge I think for us going forward. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, I think people have got to demand that, too. People need to, to, to start standing up and talking about the fact that they want to know the facts and they don't, they don't care about the talking heads. 
And I do a fair amount of that myself in the media, but it's really, it's really facts and a free press that I think are important going forward. But at the end of the day too, I really hope we see more and more candidates who will just stand up for the right thing and not just the politically expedient thing. I do too. And I hope to see you in positions that are allowing for change making, because I think, you know, you're the type of person that we want to have out there. And it's really an honor to have a chance to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? That's it. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was Senator Doug Jones. He's at DougJones.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.